In Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, we see the birth narrative of which we um, think about often this time of year, and, and today we're, we're going to start there. Luke 2, 1 through 11, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the upper room. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there, was, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. As many of you know and is quite likely the case, Luke contains more details of the early days and years of our Lord's life than any other gospel. This is clearly because he is gathering uh, that eyewitness account and information uh, from those eyewitnesses, and obviously we see that Mary is one of those eyewitnesses. Following this angelic and shepherd's gathering, Luke records that before the baby's circumcision, Joseph and Mary were obedient to name the baby Jesus, as the angel Gabriel had commanded. We also read that Mary's required days of purification according to the Mosaic law had come about, and being a people and a young couple of the law, they made their way to Bethlehem, up to Jerusalem, to present Jesus at the temple. While on the temple mount, an old man named Simeon and a prophetess by the name of Anna approached the young family, affirming that the virgin birth was nothing short of a miracle from the Lord. And Simeon took Jesus into his arms and blessed God, saying this, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your, your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. And Joseph and Mary were amazed at the things which were being said about him. They had uh, performed everything according to the law of the Lord. They returned to Galilee and to their own city of Nazareth. We find there in the text that Jesus grew and became strong, and he increased in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And at the age of 12, Joseph and Mary took Jesus up to the temple for what we would know and be known today as his bar mitzvah. He would become a son, bar mitzvah, of the law. In a surprise move, Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, only to be found three days later after Joseph and Mary came back looking for him, sitting with the teachers of the law. 
And those who heard him, as you'll remember, were amazed at the kind of questions and answers that he was giving. Honoring his father and mother, Jesus returned to Nazareth, where the details of his life go silent until his baptism by John the Baptist. Some 20 years before, Simeon, on the Temple Mount, warned Joseph and Mary concerning the life of their son. He said this, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul. And so the ministry of Jesus began at his baptism, where John the Baptist would see him coming and give this prophetic shout to the world, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus would affirm John's proclamation of him when after the triumphal entry on that Palm Sunday in AD 33, many were excited, excited remember, to, to make him king and, and see him be as king and he would come in and they would shout and sing praises, but knowing his purpose was to be that Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. Jesus said this in John chapter 12, Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Beloved, we've been making our way through this first chapter of 1 Timothy. Uh, where the Apostle Paul, after years of ministering in Ephesus, is leaving for Macedonia. He authenticates Timothy, his son in the faith, as the leader of the church at Ephesus. Timothy is to remain on. He is to stay there at the church and instruct certain men not to teach heresy, not to teach strange doctrines, and to steward the doctrine of salvation by faith in a church that was confused about the purpose of the Old Testament law. Paul clarifies to Timothy and the church for that matter that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. The Lord makes it crystal clear through Paul that the law is not for a righteous person, but rather it is for sinners. So using the law lawfully is to show an unbeliever that they have broken God's law and they are deserving of death and the judgment of hell. But the administration of God, that is, by faith in Christ Jesus, any sinner can confess their sin, that is, recognize the law, and find mercy by believing in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the law and grace are two sides of the same coin. We talked about that last week, becoming the currency or uh, somewhat of the gateway into heaven. It is this mixture of law and grace that Paul calls the glorious gospel in verse 11 there in your text. Simeon had said to the Lord regarding Jesus, my eyes have seen your salvation. John the Baptist would say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus said of himself, but for this purpose I came to this very hour. Beloved, Jesus came into this world to glorify God by saving sinners. Where we learned of the purpose of the law to convict sinners last week, this week we will focus on the other side of that coin, the grace of God. 
in the work of His Son on the cross. Well, if you have studied Paul very much or spent much time reading him, it is very difficult for Paul to ever mention the gospel, the glorious gospel, or Jesus Christ without not going on for sometimes a full chapter (laughs) before he gets back into saying what he was saying. You'll notice here that he mentions the glorious gospel in verse 11 from last week, and then he is going to go on and talk at length here today about his testimony in verses 12 through 17. Notice in your text there it says, I thank. That word in the Greek is charis. So it's not the word eucharisto. We think of thanks or thanksgiving as the Greek term, or the Greek word eucharist, where we would get eucharist. Sometimes we uh, think of that uh, with the Lord's table, right? We're giving thanks. But that is not the word here. Interestingly, it is charis. It is the word that is generally translated as grace. It has a wide semantic range. It's allowed to be translated as gift or grace or thankfulness or mercy or kindness. And the translators have done rightly here. It wouldn't make much sense to not say, I thank. And Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Friends, although this is a testimony of Paul's conversion, it is a parallel to every believer's testimony. There are pieces of a person's testimony that that should exist. There are things that we need to think about as we think about how God works in and through our life to save us. And Paul is going to point out each one of those pieces of his testimony as as we go through here. We'll slow down there and consider them. Clearly, Paul is not necessarily speaking to us today. We are just peering into the text and seeing this parallel that goes on with our own lives. First, Paul, in his born-again state, is presently, he is actively, and with this indicative mood, he is thanking God. He is thanking Christ Jesus. Jesus. And there's not a genuine believer on the face of the planet who has understood their sin rightfully and understood God's just, uh, His justness, His willingness. He has to judge sin. And there's not a believer who has understood the gospel rightly that cannot be thankful. When you really understand your sinful condition from the Lord and you really understand that it is by faith and grace that He saved you and saved you alone, that it had nothing to do with how good of a person you were and whether or not you were born in a Christian home. None of that matters. And Paul is going to go on and talk about how horrible of a person he was, especially to the first century church. And he is thankful. And beloved, we should be thankful. When we consider our sinful nature, we consider uh, what we deserve from the Lord and that which He gives us, Paul says, I am presently, I am actively, I am indicatively thankful to Christ Jesus. Second, because Christ uh, empowered, He strengthened Him. The Greek word there is from uh, the word is the word dunamis, and um, it has this. It is a compound word with with a with a um, with a prefix there that is in. So in dunamis. It's empowered or empowered. So Paul is thankful that God empowered him. He put his spirit inside of him, gave him the spirit of God that he might fill and fulfill all that he was called to do. 
And beloved, every believer since the time of Christ and since the time of the Pentecost has been indwelled with, has been uh, given the Spirit of God so that they don't go about this life trying to do things on their own, but God would strengthen them, empower them, convict them of their sin. And for what purpose did Christ empower Paul but to, to put Paul into service? The word there in your text is what we transliterate is the word is deacon. It's the word deacon. It's the word serve. Why in the world did God save Paul? Why in the world did God save you and I? Why in the world did He empower us? Not that so we could sit and do nothing, but so that we would serve. We've talked at length about Paul's specific call from the Messiah, that face-to-face conversation that he had with him on the road to Damascus where he gets this injunction right to go and preach the gospel to all of the world, all of the Gentiles. That's different. Paul's attitude here is that he is just thankful that he had been counted worthy to come and deacon, to come and serve. And did not the Lord say, He who is greatest among you will be the servant of all. Paul was put into service. We see it in Acts chapter 9, 22 and 26. Galatians chapter 1, the Scripture could not be any clearer that Paul was put into apostolic service, taking the Gospel to the Gentiles, sent from Jesus Himself. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul, after telling the church in Rome that in light of their great salvation found in chapters 1 through 11, they, that is the church, must offer their bodies as a living Sacrifice sounds like service, right? To the Lord, which was their divine act of worship. He tells them how to do so, and starting in verse 3, he does that, but we're going to focus here on verses 4 through 8. Where it says this, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, So we, who are many, are one body in Christ and individually of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to each to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his service. Or he who teaches, in his teaching. Or he who exhorts in his exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. We get the picture, right? Beloved, like Paul, the church has been empowered to be serving and working. Each one of us is to find a place within this body or whatever body God would call you to. Uh, If you have taken our orientations or our prospective member class, Um, You have heard me say this, and if you haven't, I I pray that you do take time and come and learn uh, where God is taking us, where He has brought us from, where He is moving us to. But nonetheless, I will always say this. At the end, each person applies for membership. We agree that the doctrine of the church is solid, and we say where we are going to serve. And so when we introduce people to the body, they come up, they say, I'm Jeff Zamora, Uh, I'm 
from here in Cheyenne. I work here, and I am planning on serving in as an usher in the church. Why? Because God counted Paul faithful to serve for the purpose of serving, and he would, by extension, expect right here out of Romans 12 that each one would serve. And we know that many hands make light work, and we think about a church, we think about making an impact in a nation, in a, in a city. We know that it's going to take each individual person gifted in the way that they are gifted coming forward and saying, I'm going to help in any way, shape, or possible. So I'll often say in this membership class, you are saved for membership, not takership. So I made up my own word there. You're saved to come and be a part of a local body. The idea, this Western idea that we can bounce around from church to church and just do whatever and not come under the authority of the elders or the doctrine of the church is, is ridiculous. It's non-existent in the Scripture. It does not exist. Now, you may not agree exactly where we might be doctrinally. That's why we do these classes. And we say, Amen and Amen. Find the church that fits exactly what you believe the Scripture teaches and go there and get engaged and serve because the Scripture is clear about that. Amen? It's not an option. We come together. We are saved for the purpose of serving one another and our community. Paul was thankful for his being put into service, and we are too, are we not? What if Paul had not been obedient to that call that Jesus gave him? Would the Gentiles be saved? I, I don't know. I certainly got to believe that it wouldn't look the way it looks today and we would be about at least 12 books short in your New Testament had Paul not been obedient to that call. He takes each one of us, beloved, operating the gift that God has given us. And it took Paul to take the gospel to the nations. The next piece of Paul's, uh, Paul's testimony of the glorious gospel is his recognition of his sinful condition. He says this, Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, beloved Paul, using the law lawfully, recognized that he had broken the third and the fifth commandment. After driving the Christians out of Jerusalem, Paul had attained permission from the chief priests to persecute the church in Damascus. And beyond, Luke recorded it in Acts chapter 9, verses 3 through 5, saying this, As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Listen to Paul's response. And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Notice that Jesus, was he looks at the body of Christ, we, we get used to that term. We're always constantly saying the body, the body, the body of Christ. But Jesus is absolutely identifying that because he has put his spirit inside of every tent, every believer who is a genuine believer, that Paul, as he's going around and persecuting them individually and purposefully, Jesus is saying, you are persecuting me. The Spirit of God lives in you. That's why He calls us to holiness, right? It's why He calls us to service. He individually gifts us so that one person doesn't have every gift. He, he puts us together that we might rely on one another and be a full body, a full functioning 
picture of Jesus Christ on the earth. It's why we can't just go worship on the mountain or out fixing fence if you're like me and you, and, you, and you like to do that. Who doesn't get in God's creation, look around and go, there's a God, there's a God, there's a God, right? We all love that. But we are called for a purpose. The church, literally the word, beloved, is assembly, right? It's not go do what you want, when you want, how you want, right? It's recognize the gifts, come underneath the leadership of the church. That is the biblically qualified elders and get engaged that we might have a tremendous effect in the little time that we have on this earth. Amen? The beloved Paul, prior to his salvation, he had a right view of his sinful condition. And when we have a right view of our sinful condition before a holy and just God, we will find ourselves in a position to cry out for His mercy. Amen? Paul recognized and said that he was a blasphemer and a murderer. It says this, Yet Paul was shown mercy because he acted ignorantly in unbelief. I want to pause here for a second and recognize that the Apostle Paul, prior to his conversion, uh, undoubtedly I, I would have embarrassed me in my knowledge of Scripture. Absolutely embarrassed me. He would have embarrassed me in my willingness to serve and be diligent and zealous for the things of the Lord. He would have embarrassed me in his desire and his drive to fulfill the law. He would embarrass me in his church attendance. No doubt would have been at every synagogue meeting, following every rule, doing everything he could. And yet, here he is. He is an unbeliever. Tell me that's not going on in the church. Week in, week out. Sunday in, Sunday out. People who have grown up who will refuse to not uh, be at church if the doors are open. They have memorized their scriptures. They've grown up in Sunday school. They know exactly where to take you. They can walk you down Romans Road, but yet there is a potential that they themselves are acting ignorantly and in unbelief and need to be saved. So, beloved, a person can have great knowledge and great zeal to serve God and yet not know Him. We see that in the Apostle Paul. He says there, what great words in verse 14, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. What an amazing thing, right? Beloved, three words should be ingrained upon every born-again Christian's life. They are justice, mercy, and grace. These three words define the Christian life and each one is attributed to that of the character of God. Remember with me, will you, in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 and 7, where uh, Moses had, if you remember, had spent 40 days uh, with Yahweh up on the mountain. He comes down, right? His face is, is glowing. He's carrying uh, these two tablets or these tablets with, with the Ten Commandments uh, on them. And God had, with his own finger, scribed out those commandments. He comes down, and if you'll remember, he finds, uh, he finds that uh, the nation had begun to worship an idol. He crushes the Ten Commandments. He now is making his way back up here in uh, Exodus chapter 34 
with, um, with the new commandments and his desire is to see the Lord. And when Moses had ascended back up the mountain with the Ten Commandments rewritten by his own hand and had called on Yahweh, he recorded this, The Lord passed by in front of him, that's Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord speaking of himself here, The Lord, the Lord, God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Beloved, justice, mercy, and grace are all part of who Yahweh is. And Paul acknowledged in his breaking of the law of God by blaspheming Christ and murdering the church, breaking that third and fifth commandment for sure, but he understood that although he deserved justice or judgment, he was shown mercy. And the grace of the Lord was more than abundant. Christ has come to save sinners. I hope that what we can pull out of this message, I hope that what you can consider here is certainly what Paul is trying to accomplish is to set himself up, as he already has said, as the chief among sinners. And if the chief among sinners who has all this religious knowledge and all this religious faithfulness, who's willing to go to church every time the doors are open, calls out and cries out for the mercy of God, so can you. So can you. God's grace was more than abundant. Let's consider this for just a moment, these three characteristics of God. God is just. He is a truth teller. If God breaks his promise, he no longer can be trusted. So hear me out. God told Adam and Eve, you've heard me say this, I'll say it again. Do not eat of that tree lest you will surely, what? Die. We know that they ate of that tree and we know that they immediately died and we know that that curse of death came upon the whole world. Not just Adam and Eve, but all of creation then dies. One of the biggest and most difficult questions as we look upon a world that's got pandemics, plagues, all kinds of injustices, stuff that we look at in our minds and we cry out at our hearts and we say, why is this so broken? Why is there so... If God, if God is not a loving God, would He not fix this? And my heart goes right out to you and agrees. But let me tell you what's at stake, beloved. If he just said, you know what, never mind. I decided I'm just going to put everything back to normal. I'm going to put everything back to that pre-sinful state. But yet he had recorded, you will surely die. How could you lean on his promise? If God will not fulfill his word, what hope do we have? Romans 10, 9 and 10 would tell us, right, that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in our heart uh, that God raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. That would just go away. Does that make sense to you? We would have no ability to hope in his promise. If God just said, ah, forget it. 
I'm going to undo all the sin and all the broken stuff and all the wicked things that are going on in the world because, uh, uh, because I'm just feeling bad about that now. We would never have any, we, we, we could not look at this book and, and, and have any confidence that from one day to the next, he's going to save us. He changed his mind. That's why in seminary, and you should know, right? Even as a, as a pew-sitting Christian, you should know that God is immutable. He is not changeable. He will not change. Praise God. If he changes, we're just a leaf blowing in the wind. Beloved, the Lord, the Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. He keeps loving kindness for thousands who forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. God is just. He must be just. He must punish sin. But praise God, he is merciful. Mercy, right, is this, and rightly described, is not getting what you deserve. All of us were kids at one point in time and all of us can identify with being kids at one point in time when our parents had very clearly and specifically said, don't do that. And we did it. I remember we had pretty strict rules about when we would spank our children and when we would not. And, and uh, when it unfortunately got to those points in time, uh, I had one who was very, very emotionally loud and it was hard for us to do as a parent, right, to follow through with justice, but he would cry out, right? And ask for mercy. And God, if we do it, beloved, is full of mercy. Where we have sinned and deserve the eternal punishment of hell, the Lord has mercy on those who ask for forgiveness from iniquity, transgression, and sin. God is also gracious. Where mercy is not getting what you deserve, grace is getting what you don't deserve. So now you're a sinner. You deserve nothing other than the punishment that is due you. You've cried out for mercy. And God, because He is merciful, says, I'll give you mercy, son. I'll give you mercy, daughter. And beyond that mercy, I'm going to give you grace. I'm going to give you my spirit. He's going to come live inside of you. And then when you get to heaven, I'm going to gift you with everything that you have done with a pure heart. Every decision you ever made that you didn't let your left hand know what your right hand was doing and you were serving and loving people and giving somebody a glass of water or visiting somebody in prison and you were just quietly going about all of those things. I, because I am so merciful and because I am so gracious, I will not only reward you, but uh, reward you abundantly above what you could ask, think, or imagine. And, and those aren't temporary rewards, beloved. That lasts forever. Think of that. What a God we have who saves sinners. Pondering this glorious gospel, Paul writes down the first of five of what were probably early memorized teachings or doctrines in the church. They are all found in the pastoral epistles, and if you understand pastoral epistles, we should expect that. Paul is writing, I have titled, I think rightly so, this entire time that we're going to spend in, in 1 Timothy as instructions for church. If Paul is giving instructions for church, 
Why would he not repeat the things that are orally being passed on to the church and write them down and set them in stone? And that is what he's done. Each of the five faithful sayings that exist in your Bible are all in the pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus. I want to take a look at that first one in Titus chapter 3. And as we do that, what I want you to ask yourself, is there anything, if we, if we only had these five little pieces of text, are we missing anything that it takes to live a life both in the here and now and in eternity? Ask yourself that. These are the five early sayings of the church that they had already memorized. Paul is writing them down. Titus chapter 1. Verses 1 through 8. Paul is writing to Titus for the same purpose that he would establish elders and, and, uh, and rule and reign in the church, instruction for the church. And so he is telling Titus this remind them, that's the church, to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. And why? Right there in verse 3. For we also once were foolish ourselves. Let me just pause. Why would we treat people the way they don't deserve to be treated? Why would we extend mercy like our God is merciful? Because we once also. Right? A little self-identification there. We also once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Should we expect a sinner to be a sinner, beloved? You bet. Spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Oh, but verse 4, right? But, anytime you see that, pay attention. But, when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. There it is. God is just. You don't need saving if God's not going to justly judge you. What are you being saved from? His wrath and judgment on sin. So every time you're reading saved, it's saved from what? His justice, His judgment, it's coming on sin. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to, look there, His mercy. By the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified, that is made right, by His what? Grace. There it is. Justice, mercy, and grace. We would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We'd be rewarded. In verse 8, this is a trustworthy statement. Now, honest to goodness, if all you ever memorized about the Christian life was Titus chapter 3, verses 1-8, through 8, you'd be in real good shape. You would have right doctrine. You would have right soteriology. And you would know how to act today as it pertains to people. 
you only had Titus 1, or Titus 3, 1 through 8. But he adds to this, the second is in 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. He starts this time with the statement, it is a trustworthy statement, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. There's a lot to be said in there. The third is found in 1 Timothy 4, B, 8b through 10. But godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Here it is. It is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance. For it is for this, that is the godliness, we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. The fourth is found in 1 Timothy 3.1. 1 Timothy 3.1 It is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer, your, your translation might have bishop there, it is a fine work he desires to do. And he goes on for the next 15 verses in the trustworthy statement. And what is he doing? But telling the church, if you're going to be a church, you're going to have to have elders. And if you're going to have elders, they've got to be qualified to be elders, and they've got to be qualified like this. And he's telling the church, you've got to have deacons. And if they're going to be deacons, they've got to live a life like this. It is a trustworthy statement. You need to memorize this. We need to know this. If a church is going to be a church, you must have qualified elders. You must have qualified deacons. It leads us to the fifth. It's in front of us in our text today. 1 Timothy 1.15 It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If you struggle with your memorization, <laughs> your abilities to read Scripture, and you're just trying to boil it all down, right there it is a trustworthy statement. Christ Jesus, He comes to save sinners. No doubt one could argue that if you had these five statements alone, you would have enough to live the Christian life in the here and now and for the life to come. Beloved, Simeon from Luke 2 had said that the Lord regarding Jesus, he said to the Lord regarding Jesus, my eyes have seen your salvation. John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus says, but for this purpose I came to this hour. And the Holy Spirit inspired Paul, affirms these statements by saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And notice the humility that this apostle has concerning his sin. Paul thought of himself among sinners and that he was the foremost of all. It's an interesting study if you look into your New Testament and you put it together chronologically, you'll see that Paul kind of starts by calling himself uh, the least of the apostles. By the time he's later in life, he gets to these statements and he's just saying, listen, 
I'm the chief of all sinners. Where he might have had a little pride in the Corinthians trying to establish the authority that he needed. By the time he's writing Timothy, he's just saying, listen, I'm the worst sinner that ever walked the earth. Beloved, we should identify with that. As we grow in our relationship with Christ, it is likely that we will sin less. Right? We will sin less times because of God's grace and His Spirit in our life. But the sin we do sin weighs more and more and more and more heavy on our souls. Do we come to the end of the life and we say what Jesus or what Paul is saying here and he just identifies himself among all the sinners and of those, I'm just the worst one. I pray that we would have that kind of humility. Verse 16, yet for this reason, I found mercy. Here's our word. That in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who believe in him for eternal life. Friends, Paul considered his life to be somewhat of a show and tell. He would show, as he has, that if there was ever a person who did not deserve to receive mercy from God, it was him. When he calls himself a blasphemer, I guarantee you Paul as a Pharisee, as a, as a Jew, would never have blasphemed the name of Yahweh. So there's something to be learned here in Paul's uh, understanding of, of the Trinity, of, of Christ himself being God in the flesh, and that he recognizes who Christ is in this moment when he says, Who are you, Lord? There's somewhat of an understanding that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, right? That all of a sudden now, when he looks at his life, he realizes, I have broke the third commandment. I have blasphemed the name of God. I have blasphemed our Savior, God our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I'm deserving of hell. And he was a murderer. He did not love his neighbor. And Jesus asked in the last days of his life upon the Temple Mount. It's interesting that he started them there, isn't it? When we think of Luke 2, he's up there with the teachers of the law and he's asking questions and answering questions. And if you're much of a student of the last seven days of Jesus' life, you'll know and find that he spends much of his time at that same exact spot up on the Temple Mount asking questions, answering questions. And one young lawyer comes to Jesus and he essentially wants to challenge him about the law. What is the greatest commandment? And Jesus sums up the first part of the law that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and your strength. And he could have stopped there, but he didn't. He sums up the second half and he says, and the second is just like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul has blasphemed the Lord. He took the Lord's name in vain. And now he is murdered and he has broken both parts of those law. He did not treat his neighbor as himself. He did not honor Christ as God. And he realized he needed mercy. Yet for this reason, I found mercy. The law and its importance is summed up in that statement by Jesus. To love the Lord your God 
with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love the neighbor as yourself. It is Paul's purpose in verse 16 to tell the world that if there is mercy and grace enough for me, there is mercy and grace enough for any poor soul who would come crying after me. That's what Paul is saying. He's set himself up as a show and tell. He is gone. He has put it in a, in, in a letter for eternally to be uh, written down and studied and thought about. He is, in, in, in an embarrassing way, writing of himself. And he's doing it for you and for me. That we would look at that and say, man, if God could save a guy like that, he can save me. Friends, have you believed on the Lord Jesus for salvation? If not, I pray that you would do it now. Just tell him what you know and he already knows. That you're a sinner. Ask him to extend mercy. And he will give you grace. He does that for people like me and people like you. Amen? Beloved, Jesus came into this world to glorify God by saving sinners. If you have recognized your sin and you are convinced that you deserve God's wrath and judgment, but you have cried out for mercy and received amazing grace, you can repeat this doxology. You should be able to get right into it in verse 17 with all the saints from all of time. The Apostle Paul couldn't help but to write this statement about himself and his life at the end of his testimony. He has realized that God is just to judge him. He has realized that God is also merciful and gracious. And because of that, he says this in verse 17, Now, to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. All God's people said, Amen. Father, we come to you today in humble spirit and we think of a baby whom you named Jesus. You sent in your great compassion to us who did not recognize him for the most part, Lord, and, and still do not. Pray, Lord, for each one of us, both those in here who do not know you, that they would cry out for mercy now and receive your grace. And for those who are in here and maybe in a, a valley, a shadow of death, Lord, that you might lift their head. And if there be sin left in their lives, Lord, that they are unwilling to confess and repent, God, I pray, as you will later tell Timothy here, that you would grant them repentance. Lord, we know it takes your spirit and we know that we must come alongside that. I'm reminded, Lord, of your word in James that says that you resist the proud but give grace to the humble. Help us, Lord, to humble our hearts. Help us, Lord, not to be the same people day in and day out, struggling with the same sins. We'll give you all the glory, Lord. Thank you for saving sinners. Amen.